0: Father, as we've worshiped you today, we have acknowledged you to be worthy, worthy of all praising, worthy of all honor, worthy of all glory. Lord, none of us want to steal those away from you, even though we do at times live for our own glory, we live for our own honor. But Father, we today want to collectively, acknowledge that is the desire of our hearts, that you would be the center of all things, that you would be on the receiving end of being uh, magnified, appreciated, and acknowledged as to who you are as God, God over all. Lord, surely we humble ourselves today before you, admitting that we do not understand all of your ways. They are mysterious to us. We know there are many things we will never understand in this world, but Lord, we thank you that you have given us the things in your word for us to know, revealing it to us in our own, uh, on a a level of language that we can understand on human terms, and so we pray for your Holy Spirit's enabling that we would understand your word today and see its application to our lives, that we might make more of you and understand who you are and understand your ways more clearly, and therefore bring honor and glory to you. So we ask these things now through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let me invite you to have your Bible or your pad in front of you or uh, the Pew Bible in front of you, whichever you have. I encourage you to have the Word of God there. We'd like to read Galatians chapter 6, and we'd like to read chapter 6, 1 through 10. Galatians 6, 1 through 10, page 1388 in your Pew Bible. And so if you'll find your way there, I'd like to read this passage. We've already looked at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 6. And so we're going to move forward, uh, making our progress through this wonderful, what we call the epistle of Christian liberty and celebration of the gospel. Chapter 1 of of chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another. For each one shall bear his own load. And let the one who has taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary." So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, I begin this morning with an interesting tidbit I learned this week. When archaeologists were doing excavation work on the site in Israel called Masada, Masada is an outcropping of rock right near the Dead Sea in the middle of the desert, and this sheer rock goes up uh, hundreds of feet, and on top of this outcropping of rock, Herod the Great built a, a place of refuge that he could flee to, he was paranoid, uh, in case uh, things did not go well and he looked for some place that he could escape. And it had a number of places of storage for food. It had a little palace on the corner of it. Uh, it was an amazing uh, fortress built in the desert. Well, archaeologists were there uh, in modern Israel. They've gone back in the 1940s and forward, and they've discovered some of the seeds that were still in storage uh, there at Masada. Now, they found some of those seeds were date palm seeds that are estimated to be at least 2,000 years old. I think it's fascinating because scientists like me are curious, they want to know, do you suppose if we were to plant these seeds and give them appropriate water, and give them some sunlight, what would happen? So sure enough, they planted these seeds that had been stored in very hot and dry conditions for almost 2,000 years. And of the three seeds that they planted, one of them really did grow. It germinated. Now imagine that. A seed from the time of Jesus in the first century has actually when placed in the ground, has started to grow 2,000 years later. That is amazing to me. Anyway, I know you're not as amazed as I am, but anyway. Now, you could say, well, in some sense, that is amazing. It is remarkable when you think about it. Having an ancient seed that's been lying dormant like that, and then after two millennia, sprouting to life. I mean, come on, you've got to give me that, right? That's amazing. But then I will say this. Honestly speaking, in another sense, it's not, not that remarkable. If a date palm seed, when planted in the ground, brings forth a date palm plant, what's so remarkable about that? That's what seeds do, right, in that sense. So it would be extremely odd and highly unusual if you planted a date palm seed And out of the ground comes a sycamore tree. Now that would be rather strange, odd, and peculiar, right? So that just doesn't happen. So date palm seeds always bring forth date palm trees. So that begins then uh, sort of an observation as we think about a principle that God has made. Point number one in our notes is that God has established a law of sowing and reaping in the natural world plant a date palm seed, you get a date palm tree. There is a direct correspondence between what is planted and what is consequently reaped. This law is true in a quantitative sense. For example, if a farmer who plans and desires to have, like some of the farmers out east, uh, they plant uh, their corn, and they want to grow corn that they can sell at their farm stands all summer long. Now, if they plan to have bushels and bushels of corn to sell, they're not going to have those bushels and bushels of corn to sell if they only plant 10 or, let's say, 20 seeds of corn. I mean, they're just not going to have bushels and bushels, right? I mean, that, we understand that law. The law of sowing and reaping says that if you sow a large quantity of seeds all things being equal, you will reap a large harvest virtually all the time. That's the way it goes. And if you sow only a few seeds, then your harvest will be small. And Paul picks up that principle arguing from the natural world this law that God has established of sowing and reaping. He argues in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, these words. He says, he who sows sparingly, that is just a few seeds, shall also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully, throwing out lots of seeds over large fields, that person will also reap bountifully. Now you say, you haven't taught me anything I don't know here. That's all, duh, like very obvious. Okay, well as I mentioned earlier, the law does apply in a sense not only quali- uh, quantitatively, but it has to do with the nature of the seed sown. And I've already sort of shown this point you plant a hybrid sweet corn, a seed of that in the ground, then the farmer is going to reap hybrid sweet corn. Hopefully, within a fairly short number of weeks here, we can start buying that corn and enjoying it and putting it all butter on it and salt all over it, all that stuff that we do in the summer months and pick it out of your teeth for about a week. If you plant green beans, on the other hand, you'll receive, and directly related to that sowing, you're gonna receive a harvest of green beans that the the farmer has put into the field. Okay, that's the point. That's logical, it's elementary, it's simple. Even a child can comprehend that principle. But for some reason, when you think of this principle of sowing and reaping, and you bring it over into the spiritual or moral realm, somehow there is a disconnect. For many people, we just don't get it and that's why our second point here in the outline is God has established a law of sowing and reaping in the moral and spiritual world. And this is what Paul is trying now to deal with here in this passage of Galatians 6. Many of us, for some reason, assume that there is no correlation to our behavior or there's no correlation between our choices that we make over a period of time and the consequences of those choices. The modern world is very good at trying to separate out those two. They're always trying to sort of shift the blame to something or someone else, other than the fact that we have all made certain choices, we have all done certain behaviors over a period of time, and therefore those contribute to their certain consequences based on those choices over a period of time. Many of us have a tendency to assume that we are not going to somehow reap the results of our behavior. Some of us tend to disregard the law of sowing and reaping in everyday life. For example, if we, in our sowing, consume more calories than we burn off over a period of time, that is, one's married life, then what happens is you move toward gaining more and more weight, and so you have to buy larger clothes and all those kind of things that go with it. It's pretty simple. You don't have to have some kind of magic formula to help us understand what's going on in this realm. It is the principle of sowing and reaping. And if you, in our sowing, I never change the oil in my car, for example, and I ignore the check engine light on the dashboard and just assume it's part of the decoration that's just there in the dashboard. It just sort of adds a little color uh, to what I see when I drive. And I never, ever replace the treadless tires on my car then it's not too surprising that I'm going to lack, at some point, I'm going, to, I'm going to reap the fact that I lack a reliable car, a car that's actually going to move me from point A to point B safely, because someday that car is not going to be running, and someday that car, is, if it is running, is going to run me right into the ditch on a rainy day, or a snowy day. So if a person sows the seeds of Another example of not paying his taxes. I don't recommend this, but some people do it. You're not going to pay your taxes for a number of years. You're going to reap a nightmare of having to deal with the IRS, and they're going to give you penalties. They're going to give you interest. They're going to give you a number of consequences, and the reaping will come. It's not a pleasant situation. It's nightmarish for sure. So all of us at some times have bought into the lie that even though we sow a life of unethical patterns, of ungodly living, of illegal behaviors, somehow we're going to be spared the inevitable reaping of the consequences of all the sowing of those behaviors. Somehow in our, in our own way of thinking, we buy into that distorted way of believing. And that's why we come to verse 7 of chapter 6. And Paul wants it to be very clear, do not be duped into thinking that way. Here's a warning in which, based on the gospel, Paul is saying the God who established this law of reaping and sowing in the natural world is also the God who has established the law of reaping and sowing in the moral and spiritual world, and he's saying God can't be duped. Verse 6, verse verse 7, sorry. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, this he will also reap. No one can fool God. No one can outwit God. No one can somehow evade this law that God has established in the moral and spiritual realm. All of us somehow, on some level, often slip into thinking that we can pull one over on God somehow. We keep hoping that God will somehow overlook this sowing, sowing, sowing that has not been appropriate or or proper or ethical or godly, and then we're somehow going to think that God is going to somehow ignore the fact of that, and somehow we can think he can be fooled or duped, or somehow that uh, this can be uh, escape that kind of law. Well, let me just again remind us that the God with whom we have to do is the God who sees everything and He knows everything. So Hebrews 4.13, you might want to jot that down or I think it's in your notes, spells out the breadth of God's knowledge. What does God know? It says here that there is no creature hidden from God's sight. That would mean you and me, we're a creature, we're a person created by God. But He says, all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So, whatever it is that's going on in our sowing and reaping, God's aware of it. There's nothing that we can do to, to escape that knowledge. According to Psalm 44, verse 21, God knows the secrets of the heart. Even in the inner thinking and the, and the, and the imagination, even in our, our, uh, uh, our, our ways of thinking about what we really long for, God's aware of all those things. Psalm 33, we read, The Lord looks from heaven, he sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he who understands all their works. Many of us somehow like to close our eyes to the moral and spiritual consequences of our actions. But I assure you, according to this passage of Scripture, there is no escaping the law of reaping and sowing. All attempts to circumvent this law in the moral and spiritual realm will ultimately fail. Now, I'll talk more about that next week when we want to look at one particular angle of how Paul applies that text. But what I want to focus on this morning is an overall principle in this passage. I want to step back and just summarize what he seems to be saying in the flow of where he's been in this passage in the book of Galatians. Because remember... When you're reading a passage of Scripture, you've got to make sure where does it connect with what came before and how does it connect with what comes after. We don't just take verses and yank them out of context. So what we could say then, if we expect to reap a harvest of spiritual fruit, because that's what he's been talking about, right? Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, he's been talking about the Spirit working his fruit and the evidence of a character change over time as the Spirit helps to apply the gospel to our lives. If we expect to reap a harvest of spiritual fruit of godliness in our lives, then we as the people of God must have the gospel sown into our lives again and again and again into our hearts and our minds. So let me just read it again. If the fruit of the Spirit is to be evident in the lives of God's people, the gospel must be constantly sown in our hearts and our minds. As we yield to the leading and direction of the Holy Spirit, chapter 5, verse 25, Spirit of God is going to apply the gospel to our hearts and we're going to reap this beneficial spiritual harvest over time. Some of that harvest looks like the fact, he says, we're going to be helping to restore people who have fallen into sin. We're going to be helping bearing burdens of each other. We're going to be carrying our own load and trying to do the things that we're responsible to do in life. And next week, Lord willing, I hope to take... Further applications that Paul is going to make here, I don't want to get further on now, Chapter verses 7, 8, and 9 and following, 10. I'm going to wait till next week to get to that. But I want to look at the first application that the Apostle Paul makes to this general principle in this context of spiritual fruit. It happens in church life when the local church is caring and sharing together. If a local church ever hopes to be spiritually healthy, if a local church ever hopes to be spiritually vibrant, it must have a continuous, ongoing ministry of biblical teaching and preaching. I think that's how verse 6 fits into this flow of his argument. Verse 6, And let the one who has taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. And then he goes and says, Don't be deceived, God is not mocked, you reap what you sow. I want to focus first of all on helping us understand the words "taught" and "him who teaches." The words that appear in the Greek, the original language, both come from the same root word. The word that we have in English, catechism, catechism. Some of you, how many of you have ever grew up with a catechism? Okay, some of you. All right, catechism. Uh, when I was a child, was the shorter Westminster Catechism was uh, uh, I was offered. Uh, I, we could have a free day in the park, uh, steak dinner. I forget what all they offered us if we would memorize the question and answer for the shorter catechism. I didn't make it very far. I, I got maybe five questions. I mean, was, I was very poor, I must say. Didn't apply myself very well there at all. But catechism means to instruct someone systematically. And so a catechism often was a way of instructing, originally, people who were um, unable to read. So illiterate people could memorize a question and an answer and they would be able to understand in a systematic way doctrine and biblical teaching. In this sense, what Paul is saying, someone who is systematically teaching the scriptures, uh, the one who is on the receiving end of that systematic teaching is the one should share all good things with that person. So if the Spirit of God is to bring forth spiritual fruit of godliness and holiness in the membership of a local church, The pastor-teacher is to carry out a ministry of instructional teaching ministry so that the people of God will be spiritually nourished and fed. In order to sustain this ministry of sowing, biblical teaching, and preaching among church members, the members then are encouraged to voluntarily offer their own practical support to the one who carries out this teaching and preaching ministry. Now let me pause just for a second. I want to be very clear here. This could be a rather awkward situation to be teaching and preaching on this. But I'm carrying it forward because it's in the text of Scripture. Please do not hear me saying I'm preaching on this text because I'm trying to make a statement about myself. That's not the case here at all. I'm preaching the text because I've been preaching on the book of Galatians now for 35 weeks. So if you're here for a visitor and you say, well, this is a strange sermon. The pastors looking for money. Please don't hear me. That's not what I'm saying at all. Matter of fact, I'm gonna be saying the exact opposite of saying thank you, acknowledging how this church has carried out this wonderful ministry. So please stay with me now. Don't draw the wrong conclusions. Don't try to question my motives as being somehow all about myself. What I'm trying to do is understand this text of scripture. I have no hidden agenda here. I'm trying to complete this series on the book of Galatians. Okay, so I hope you heard me on that. If you did, I wanna expound now this principle on this particular passage, and then I want to offer my words of personal gratitude to this loving flock here at New Village. First of all, let me say, there's an abundance of biblical support in the Scriptures for this general principle about the fact that the people of God, when motivated by the gospel that has changed their hearts, has brought them to life in Christ, has introduced them to a living and wonderful relationship with God through what Jesus Christ did on the cross and through his resurrection, that the gospel motivates these people to yield themselves to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, in yielding to his leading, they're involving themselves in ways of responding that's by way of saying, voluntarily, not because they're required to, not because they're forced to, not because they're, 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 they're um, uh, somehow compelled by external forces of the one who's doing the teaching, but because voluntarily they want to make contributions to support the one who is called by God to instruct them. You say, well, where does this show itself in Scripture? All right, Luke chapter 10, verse 7. Jesus sends out 70 people. He's training them. He's giving them opportunities to do ministry, preparing for the day when he's no longer there. He sends them out two by two in Luke 10, and he basically says to them, listen, when people offer you help in their home and they provide you food and, and accommodations, He says you should accept those practical provisions as you're laboring out here doing these ministry things. And he then says this, the laborer is worthy of his wages. So that he ties the wages to the fact that people are offering them practical assistance for their ministry on the road. And then in the passage that we read moments earlier, uh, Matt DePresso read for us, is Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, Very important passage. I don't know if you've ever read that again, but I encourage you to have that in front of you. 13.63, 1 Corinthians 9. Again, the biblical principle here is verse 7. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? He says, what soldier ever serves in the military and doesn't get some sort of compensation for his service there? Uh, Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? I would dare say, if you go on the North Fork, out east, where they have all those vineyards, can you imagine people who work there, they never get to taste the wine? That's just not going to happen. Those people, I'm sure, enjoy the wine that they grow and make at these vineyards. And then he says, who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Most people who, you know, milk, dairy, dairy farmers, don't you think they ever drink milk or have butter or, you know, the cream that comes from their hard labors? Of course they do. For it is written in the law of Moses... Verse 9, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. To thresh means to drag this sled thing around on grain so that it cleans the grain off so that you can therefore eat the grain, the the kernel of of wheat probably more likely. And he says, uh, then in verse 13 to 14, and by the way, he probably then uh, allows the ox, instead of who's going to sit there and start eating all that grain while he's going around, they give the ox something to eat which is the fruit of his labors. He's made the grain available to eat, and eventually they'll feed the ox that's doing the work. So do you not know that those who perform sacred duties, verse 13, eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share with the altar? So also, verse 14, the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So let me just again back up and just say a couple of personal acknowledgments to the fact of this biblical principle. I just want to say to this wonderful congregation that you have generously and very graciously and faithfully compensated me and other full-time staff that we've had ministering here, Tim and others who have preceded him as youth pastors, that you have done that at least the 20 years I've been here. I know that to be true, and I know that to be true prior to my time here. And so I want you to hear that I am profoundly grateful for what you have sown into my life. It is an incredible privilege to think of people who voluntarily give of their resources so that I enjoy the benefit of deriving uh, the benefits of being able to have an income and then do what I do. It's a tremendously blessing. The generous Christmas gifts that come every year, I I can never express how incredibly generous you people are. Uh, the 20-year anniversary we had, an amazing amount of giving that comes our way. And we receive those with great gratitude, evidencing the fact that, in our view, the Spirit of God has produced this. I am not a person that, that is perceived in any way of preaching on money every week. I'm, to the other extreme, I never preach on money and giving. To a fault, probably. And so I want you to hear that I am profoundly grateful for what you have sown in my life and in the life of our church. Because by your faithful giving, by your generous giving, you have compensated me so generously that I have time now to prepare, <clears throat> not only sermons each week. I've been over 20 years, I've preached the same sermon twice, maybe once or twice, three times. I mean, I don't haven't done it that many times. I enjoy preparing new sermons, not just recycling something from the past and I prepare Sunday school lessons, I do Bible studies, I'm able to do that along with preparing my own soul and my own heart, which is very important. You also have made it possible for me to provide for free of charge, every time I've done a wedding, I have met with that couple and sought to help them prepare for life together as husband and wife, and investing hours in them and trying to help counsel them and address problems and potential areas of concern. Because of your generous sharing of all good things in my life, I'm able then also to counsel people on the phone or in person and sit down with people and talk to them about the scriptures and how they can understand how that applies to their situations, and they make hospital visits, to prepare gospel-centered funerals for people. And I'm not sitting there looking for money all the time from these people. I give of these things because you have given so graciously to me. There are certain churches where you go and they say, "Well, if you're going to do X, Y and Z, give us the fee first. And then you can do this. Our church is not that way. Our church is not that way at all. And so for this to happen in an area of the United States where the cost of living is way up here on the scale, we all know that, high taxes, when it's that kind of a situation, and it's still generous giving, sustaining that kind of ministry, all I can say is it's evidence to me of the fact that the Holy Spirit is leading people Within this flock, because that is not natural for people to give that generously, to sustain that. Because you're not directly deriving the benefit as, a, as an exact payback to you, it's a general thing that's offered to everyone. Here's an example. Years ago, I had my mechanic, I no longer use this guy, but it, at the time I had dropped off my car, he then gives me a ride back here. So he drops me off at church, he says, Hey, can I walk around your building? I said, sure. So we walk around the building, and we go downstairs. He sees this big fellowship hall, and he goes, wow, what a great bingo hall. And I thought, here's a great opportunity to illustrate the gospel. I said, you know, I said, we don't ever use this hall for bingo. He goes, what? You don't do bingo? I said, no, we don't do bingo in our church. He says, you're crazy. What are you talking about? How do you get enough money to, run to pay the bills? I said people give freely and generously of their own accord. You could just tell that just did not compute. I mean, you could just, t- for a second, he's like, what, what are you talking about? It's beyond, it's beyond his understanding that anybody would get to the point where they free up their money of their own accord out of an overflow of gratitude to what God has done for them in the gospel. So I had an opportunity to share how God changes hearts and changes lives because that's the evidence of that. Now, let me just say again, I'm convinced that this passage of Scripture is trying to help us see that as the Word of God is sown into the lives of the people of God and they submit to the Holy Spirit's guidance regarding the riches of the Gospel, the harvest is going to be that people are going to have lives that are different and look different and are operating differently and buy into a different value system than the world's system. Sadly enough, by the way, there are people in today's world who are trying to reinvent the church, and they're trying to say, well, i tell you what, let's do church where we get somebody who's a very good communicator, and let's just show his videos in this place, and he'll be our quote-unquote shepherd. Well, who are you going to seek for counsel if you have a video that you're being fed with every week? You could watch a video at home. There are other churches where you go, And they go and they get lots of great exciting music and lots of lights flashing and lots of exciting things happening and the pastor hardly ever opens the scriptures. There is no word being proclaimed. I don't know what he's preparing, but it's nothing to do with scripture. And so I'm thankful to say that we as a church are blessed to have The opportunity, and I am blessed to have the opportunity, to say, I want to preach and explain Scripture because that's the food for our souls, which helps them the Spirit of God can show us how He's going to lead us. It's through the Scriptures. All right. Let's move forward here. I want to make one other thing clear here in terms of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which I think is so helpful to tie in together how the Gospel makes a difference in terms of people and how they view their giving and what they do with their resources and their money. <clears throat> and supporting various needs according to the spirit's leading. For example, <clears throat> in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, Paul is celebrating the liberality of the Macedonian people. They were people who did not have much money, as many of us feel the tightness of money in this area. They didn't have much money, but they found it a joyful opportunity to participate and have fellowship with other people who were in di- more difficult situations due to famine. And so Paul, in talking to them about this opportunity, he says, I'm not going to come and cajole you or beg you or plead with you or make you feel guilty and give you some emotional story about the plight of these people or I'm not going to come here and demand that you do these things. What he says is, I'm going to remind you of the gospel. Do you have that? 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. 1378 in your pew Bible. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. This is his approach in dealing with this situation. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's riches that have come to you through Christ, which you don't deserve, that Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. That you, through his poverty, might become rich. The gospel says that because of what Jesus has done, we who have nothing spiritually speaking of any value to offer to God, we become rich because Christ has given us what we could never attain ourselves and what we had that was a, a, an offense before God has been placed on Christ. And he paid for that on the cross. Therefore, we have become rich. Rich spiritually speaking. Rich in terms of our status before God, rich in terms of the benefits of what we derive from the gospel. It is we are wealthy people. Before our loving and gracious God in Christ. And he says, The gospel that now has been sown in your heart by the Holy Spirit, that Spirit now is producing this fruit of a generous spirit in giving bountifully. 2 Corinthians 9, he says to them, This is not giving that's done grudgingly, like, Oh, brother, do I have to give to this stupid, oh, man, I've got to give more of this crazy thing. It's not that kind of giving. It's not the giving of being under compulsion that somebody's got a gun in your back and say, okay, you've got to do this, come on. There's no way about this. You do this to save face. No, there's nothing, nothing that at all. The Gospel says that because of, not emotions, but because of how we've been affected by the Gospel, we view money differently. and Therefore, our money is a tool. It's a means of taking what God has blessed me with, and I am, as a rich person, I am going to divest myself into the lives of other people so that they can be blessed and become rich in Christ through the gospel. So Paul says that God's people share this wonderful partnership. The word he uses in Galatians 6, verse 6, is koinonia. There's a a fellowship, a sharing, a partnership together this idea of people who are offering, their uh, sharing all good things. This person's offering spiritual truth and food. It comes together in this amazing cooperative sharing of life together as we sow the seeds of the gospel teaching into our lives. Now I want to get to my last couple points here. There are a couple of gospel guidelines that help us avoid things that are inappropriate with regard to this kind of cooperative Koinonian fellowship. There are some churches, this is not one of them, but I've heard of them, and I've actually attended one for a period of time. Some churches, they like to use money as a means of blackmailing their pastor. And they, therefore, sort of hold over his head a certain expectation that if you expect to have certain kind of, of uh, remuneration, therefore, we don't want to hear you talk about X, Y, or Z in the Bible. And so they pretty much try to... Uh, withdraw with uh, monetary pressure, uh, monetary provision uh, from this pastor saying, We're not going to give you any kind of compensation if you continue to do XYZ and preach on something we don't think is appropriate. What went on here. And so some people have the philosophy in certain churches, not here, that you keep the pastor humble, Lord, and we'll keep him poor. As if that is some sort of a, a helpful. Uh, mode of life as if the pastor has some way, uh, you know, taken a vow of poverty. Well, that's not the case. And so therefore, I'm thankful that's not been the case here at our church. And I'm also thankful to say that the love of Christ, when we really understand the love of Christ, it compels us to sow material support, material giving into those who do gospel ministry uh, here and other places so that those people who receive the, in, the, the, the means of the ministry of those who are empowered to do that, they become blessed. And many other people now can become enriched from their spiritual poverty with the gospel. And therefore, we honor and glorify God. And that's been the truth of our church. Here we are as a church with many needs, many challenges. And yet, over the years, we've given almost 20% of our giving is to other ministries beyond what we do here. That's amazing. That's incredible, really, when you think about it. That's sacrificial. But it's saying that what we're saying is is that we believe it's important that ministry continue to be sustained so that it frees up people so that they can do ministry in the name of Christ, bringing riches and blessing of the gospel to many other lives. There's a song years ago that was written in which the refrain said, Thank you for giving to the Lord. Remember that? Thank you for giving to the Lord. I'm a life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I'm so glad you gave. You know, there's, who knows when we're going to hear those people acknowledge how the investment into those who have been involved in ministry has now brought forth fruit. that is. Who knows where it all is? Who knows all the people that have been impacted by that? And who knows what will happen even this summer as our church involves itself in this two-camp outreach that's significantly important in sowing the seeds of the gospel in our community. I hope you're on board. I hope you're supporting it. I hope you're helping and praying and very much standing behind all these things. Now, again, that does not apply to our church, the idea of sort of thinking that uh, they blackmail the pastor. But the other danger in terms of people who don't follow this principle happens on the other side of the equation. So I will speak to those pastors who could potentially abuse this kind of text, and they would therefore be those who would slip into sowing into their flesh. This is when a pastor becomes lazy. Pastors who are lazy are those who lack zeal, in their, uh, they grow slack in their zeal for the gospel, and they are supposedly, according to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, they are to toil at the word, They are to work hard at preaching and teaching. That's the standard. They are to expend much effort in their labors. Now, there are some pastors who like to bounce around every couple of years, and they take the same messages they developed, and they just give those same messages for two or three years, and they move on somewhere else. And they're doing a number of things, but they're not really laboring at the Word. And they're not able to enrich themselves on the Word because they're so busy doing whatever else they're doing. And they are, unfortunately, there to enrich themselves at the expense of those people who are supposedly supporting them because then they don't get much spiritual food. And also the fact that they sit back and enjoy this kind of, well, handout and support when they're really not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And that's why Peter says in 1 Peter 5, very interesting to tie all this together, Peter says, listen, we as elders are to be shepherding the flock of God we're primarily not to be motivated by what? Money. So he says, 1 Peter 5, 2, shepherd the flock of God among you, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. That is, there's got to be a higher motive than just to do it for money. And clearly, that is true. Most pastors give the ministry not because they desire to get rich. They really do have a love for God's people and desire to preach the word. And one of the requirements of an elder is that they not be lovers of money. So let's summarize what we said here. We know that there are general principles, laws that are in effect, reaping and sowing, right? It affects the natural world and the spiritual and the moral world. Here's a nice quote for us to end on today from that uh, pastor who's no longer here in this world but is in glory, Adrian Rogers. He says this, It's what you sow that multiplies, not what you keep in your barn. It's what you sow that is in the investment of your resources, into other lives, into gospel ministry. It's that what you sow in ministry that multiplies, but what you keep in your barns does not. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we want to thank you for The blessing of being a part of this church family, we thank you, Lord, for their amazing generosity over these years. We thank you, Lord, that we as a church uh, see the evidence of the Spirit of God who has changed people's lives, changed the way they view money, has helped us, Lord, to change our attitude toward our own stewardship of the things that are entrusted to us. We begin to see them differently. We begin to use them differently. We begin to understand, Lord, the benefit of seeing your word proclaimed and taught and shared and and, uh, offered as counsel to to other people. Lord, we thank you that the gospel is the power of God to change lives, but it comes through the hearing of Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that as we move forward this summer with our uh, VBS, our Adventure Week, and our soccer camp, Lord, as well as other ministries in our church following up with Christianity Explored Lord, we pray that we might be faithful in making known the gospel here in this place in ways that we see other lives deriving and reaping the benefit, Lord, of seeing the gospel transform their lives. And I pray, Lord, for some people here, Lord, today who have given generously, who find themselves concerned about their future, the increasing uh, higher cost of living. We pray, Lord, you would help all of us to trust you and to continue to rely and follow the leading of the Spirit of God. I pray, Lord, for some of us here today who've never really given much thought as to our resources. We don't even know where all our money goes. We have no clue where the money is actually spent. And we've been somewhat mismanaging the resources you've entrusted to us. I pray, Lord, you would heighten awareness in our own minds to see what is really important and where we can invest the best into the kingdom and honor you with the limited resources that we have. And toward that end, Father, we pray that you would be glorified And that your gospel will continue to be um, sown in an effective way and bring forth a harvest of great souls for Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Let me encourage you to join us with our last hymn in which we.